listen, the fellowship is a people that are committed to spiritual growth. In other words, we don't want to just come and listen and we don't want to just come and observe and we don't want to just embrace some type of empty religion. We want our faith to deepen and we want our spiritual life to flourish. And one of the mechanisms or tools that we've decided to use over the next several months is if you notice on the screen up at the top, it says journey challenge. That's simply a tool. It's simply a tool. And that tool is designed month by month for us to make a focused effort to grow in a specific area of our life. Last month, we took steps to grow in the area of how we handle the word of God. And so we talked about consistently and accurately applying God's word to our life. So today, if you are a guest, you came at the perfect time because we're pivoting away from that. And as you see, this month, our focus is on learning to abide in the presence of God. And so every month we have what's called a thrive statement. This is just simply a statement that we look at and we embrace and say, if I can say that statement is true about my life, then I can say that I'm relatively spiritually healthy in this area. So this morning, I want to introduce to you the Thrive Statement. If you have your bulletin, it's there in front of you. But if you don't, it's going to come up on the screen. This is our Thrive Statement for abiding in the presence of God. I am aware of responding to and celebrating the presence of God throughout the day. I am aware of, responsive to, and celebrating the presence of God throughout the day. Now, what do we do with that Thrive Statement? Some of you were a little confused last month because we did something new. We challenged everybody, everybody, to set what we call a personal growth goal. That's something that is specifically for you. It is set by you. It is set for your own spiritual growth. And it is designed to give you a next step. And here's what we want to do with our personal growth goal. And here's, here's what it's for. And these will, these will come up on the screen if you want to jot these down. It takes into account for where you are now and what your next step should be according to the Thrive Statement. So here's what that means. Before we open the Word of God this morning, I just want for us to understand what it is that the fellowship is participating in. And if you're a guest today, you're not held out of this. We invite you to come on this journey with us because we want to invest in you the time that it takes to grow spiritually. So the Thrive Statement is, I am aware of responding to and celebrating the presence of God throughout the day. Now you may look at that and say, I got to be honest, I'm not very aware of God's presence until about 10 a.m. in the morning. And that's really where I need to work. Good. Then you have a a way for you to grow. You have a a personal growth goal that you can say, I want to be aware of God's presence more in the morning time. I don't want to be cranky anymore. I want to wake up singing God's praise, right? But what I want to do is share with you my personal growth goal. I want to share with you what it is that I'm working on this month as it relates to abiding in the presence of God. And here's why this is important to me. I have discovered in my own personal life that oftentimes I'm the most taxed and mentally blasted 
when I get home after uh, being, you know, at the office or whatever I'm doing for the day. But when I pull into my house, in my car, oftentimes that is where I struggle the most to interact with my family, to interact with God. And so oftentimes if I look and I say, I'm not very responsive to God at a specific time in my day, it usually can be traced back to that time where you're done for the day and you turn the ignition off and you're like, I just need to detach. But I don't want to detach from God. And so I'm going to share with you. In fact, I think we have it for the screen this is Pastor Zach's personal growth goal. Now, you don't, have to, you don't have to come next week, and we're not going to put yours up on the screen. It's personal, okay? But I want you to know what I'm working on so that you can pray for me, and also maybe it gives you an example of, of a personal growth goal so that you can set one. I will worship, read, and enjoy being with Jesus for five minutes before getting out of my car coming home. So I'm going to pull into my driveway. I'm going to put it in park. Before I turn off the car... I'm going to be in worship and I'm going to be in the word of God and I'm going to intentionally be aware of God's presence so that when I walk into my house, I'm I'm walking with God and I'm everything that my family needs for me to be. So that's my personal growth goal. Say one more thing before we jump into God's word today. If you did not take the journey challenge last month, but you want to take it this month, I want to invite you. And one of the ways that you can do that, and we text back and forth throughout the month, and the way that we do that is by texting the letters JC. Now, that doesn't stand for Jesus Christ. That stands for Journey Challenge, okay? But if you want to take a journey with us in this area of spiritual life, I encourage you to text the the initials JC to 484848, all right? For us to really abide in the presence of God, we need to take stock of all of the different ways in God's word that we find people responding to the presence of God. You can probably imagine this, that not everybody responds to God in the same way. We're going to take some time today to uh, look at God's word and think about how it is that people have responded to God. Now, Before we do that, I want to share with you why we're looking at these five responses. As we think about the Thrive Statement, I am aware of responding to and celebrating God's presence throughout the day. Here's what the Thrive Statement is going to help us do. Now, this morning's message is one small part in helping us achieve that Thrive Statement. But what I want to do is help you to understand what does that Thrive Statement do for us? It does three things. The first thing that it does is it helps us to sanctify the entire day. Probably there's a a point in your day where you feel the best, where you feel like everything's firing on the right cylinders and you feel close to God and your caffeine, if you drink caffeine, is kicked in and the worship songs are playing and you're thinking, I feel so close to God. And then something else sets in. And for some reason, we might even say, I don't feel close to God at this specific part of my day. Well, if we can successfully achieve the Thrive Statement, what that means is that our entire day is going to be spent abiding in the presence of God. Now, let me be clear. That doesn't mean that we're going to sit off in the closet praying all day. 
doesn't mean we're going to quit our jobs or we're going to have to be listening to worship music for the whole day, although that would be an amazing thing. It doesn't mean that we're detaching from the world. It just means that as we're engaging the world, we are doing so with this idea that my entire day, no matter what it is, whether it's at a meal time or at a meeting time or at study hall or sitting in traffic, whatever it is, it is done in the presence of God because God is at all places and at all times. And we're his kids. We get this awesome chance to connect with God no matter what's going on around us. So achieving that thrive statement will help us to sanctify our day. Another thing, and I got to be honest, I didn't know what to call this, so I just called it divine manners. Divine manners. Here's what I mean by that. One time, when, when I first started out in ministry, I was so excited because I was able to get on at a church as the student, uh, student ministry leader, as the student pastor. And this wasn't two weeks. Within two weeks, I met my pastor uh, and his whole family, and they happened to have a son, and I think he was like six years old. And the pastor introduced me to his son. And I stick out my hand, right, because I'm like, well, hey, how are you? And this kid goes, whack! And he kicks me right in the shin. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I want to tell you what I was thinking. (laughs) But I was just thinking now, this kid's dad is my boss. So I need to be careful here, right? And, And he says, he calls his son's name. He says, we don't kick like that in church. I'm like, in church? Kid me? You don't do that anywhere, you know? Like, have some manners, right? We just met. We just met and you're like, whack. And you know, some kids are shy and when they meet you, they hide and they don't want to be around you. Or some of them are like, and they stick their tongue out. And, and the way that we interact with, with people is important. And we spend a lot of time on talking with our kids about manners and how you interact when you come into the room with an adult. What if there's something to be said about how we interact with God? When God makes his presence known, what if there's some divine manners? That's what we're looking at this morning, are five responses on how people respond to the presence of God. The last one is this, and we're going to start looking at these five ways. Uh, this, this month's Thrive Statement helps us to maximize our impact in the world. Let me speak a, just a direct word to you if you're hungry for God to use you in the world around you on your block at your job, with your family, whatever it may be, if you are hungry for God to work in you first and through you second to really make an impact in the world around you, it is essential that you learn how to abide in the presence of God. How to live your life out in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're looking at these five ways that people respond to God. And we're just going to jump in. The first one is ignorance. Some people are ignorant of the reality that God is near them. And I want to be clear what we're talking about this morning because I mentioned this already, but let's just nail this down. There is never a time where God is not available to us and because the, the, the Bible teaches that God 
is always present. That's why the Thrive Statement says not that I'm in the presence of God. I'm aware of and responding to and celebrating the presence of God. But there are some times in life, and we're going to look at two, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, where these people were literally in the very presence of God. They weren't even aware. One is in 1 Samuel with a guy by the name of Samuel. And one is in the New Testament with some disciples. And so you see the scriptures. If you want to just jot these down, you can go back and look at them later. But actually what we're going to do is look at two portions of these scriptures because I want you to get this, okay? And let me set this first one up for you. Samuel is a very young man and he lives with the priest Eli and he serves with the priest. So he's doing all these religious things and he is constantly serving with Eli and he's constantly serving God. Now, go ahead and put the scripture. I want for us to look at this. The scripture says that the Lord called Samuel, called him by name. And Samuel jumps up. He says, here I am. And he runs to Eli. Now, why did he run to Eli? Because he didn't understand that it was God that was speaking to him. Was he religious? Yes. Did he make attempts to serve God? Yes. Was he in the temple all the time? Yes. Did he know the voice of God when it spoke to him? No. You see, you can do religious things and not even realize that God is engaging you. The Lord called Samuel and he said, here am I. And he ran to Eli and he said, hey, Eli, here I am. You called me. But he said, I didn't call you. Go lie back down. So he went and he lay down. And this happens three different times. Now, what? please hear me, because there may be somebody here that this is just going to set you free this morning. There are times that God is getting our attention and speaking to us, and we completely misunderstand the situation. And we don't even connect it to God. Now, this is a beautifully innocent, halfway humorous, totally tragic story about a young man who's being called out by God. And over and over and over, he gets up and he runs to Eli because he knows he hears his name. But he doesn't understand that it's God speaking to him. Could it be? That God is speaking to you and God is engaging with you and you're not even aware of it. He said, well, that's in the Old Testament. Okay. Well, the next scripture comes from the time frame in which Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, but he has not yet ascended back into heaven. And here's what the scripture says. While they... They, being a group of disciples, being a group of Christ people, while they were talking and discussing, they're on the road. They're walking down the road. And the scripture says they're walking together and they're talking together. And it says that all of a sudden, Jesus himself, post-resurrection Jesus, appears to them and starts talking with them. 
They don't understand it. And so if we're really going to be aware of, respond to, and celebrate the presence of God, we have to understand that there are times in our life when God is engaging us and we're ignorant of it. And I don't use the word ignorant in the negative sense. I mean, I just mean it in the honest sense. It isn't even registering that God is engaging with us. Now, the second response that's possible because we see it in the word of God is fear. And we see this happen in the life of Isaiah, which is one of the most prominent prophets in the Old Testament. You've probably uh, heard of the prophet Isaiah before in your life. But you've got Isaiah. You've also got Peter in Luke chapter 5. So let's look just for a moment at some of these scriptures. Now, God appears to Isaiah. Again, this is a glorious scene. God appears to Isaiah and he's going to call him into ministry. He's going to say, Isaiah, I have a plan for you. I have a ministry for you. I want to call you to be my prophet. I want to send you to my beloved people. I want you to speak my word. I want you to call him into repentance. I mean, this is a glorious calling. And he has this vision of God. You know what Isaiah says? He says, woe is me. Woe is me. I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips. Some translations say I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He was filled with dread. Because he knew how holy God was and he knew that he was sinful and he was filled with fear being in the presence of God. Again, we may say that's Old Testament stuff. Go to the New Testament. This is Peter. This is the apostle Peter. This is the one who did all of these incredible ministry points and and miracles and incredible sermons. And do you know how he got his start? He was a fisherman. And you may, if you grew up in the church, you may know the story. But if you don't, let me share it with you. If you don't have a background in the Bible, incredible story. Peter and a couple of his friends are fishing. And I mean fishing. They're not catching. They're fishing. Story of my life. <clears throat> they caught nothing. And so they fished all night. They were bringing their nets in. Jesus was out there and he'd been teaching. And he says to Peter, he says, hey, put out over there and... And you'll get a catch. And Peter says, come on, Jesus. We've been fishing all night. You know what he's saying? I'm tired. We've caught nothing. Now, if you're a fisherman, you know how humble it is to say that statement. We were out all night. We caught nothing. But, this is what Peter says, but because you say it, we will do it. Now, this is where it turns into the fisherman's dream. Because the scripture says, and this is this is in uh, Luke chapter five. When they did what Jesus said, they caught so many fish that their boat was going to sink. And they had to get their friends to come over and help them get all the fish. And this is what the scripture says. Everybody was going nuts. But Jesus, and you see what the scripture says, Jesus goes over and he kneels down in fear and astonishment. And he says, go away from me, Lord. 
for I am a sinful man. Again, he understood the holiness of God and he knew he was sinful and it filled him with fear. A couple of thousand years ago, Isaiah did the same thing. Peter did it in this time and perhaps there are people here today who feel the same way. And when you're in the presence of God, you feel not excitement, not joy, but fear. Why? Because you know that you have sin. And you're following in the footsteps of Peter. And you're, you're thinking, I can't run into the presence of God. I need to run away from the presence of God. He is holy. I am sinful. I'm like Peter. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, here's what I want to do. Before we move on to the next response, I just want to read the Word of God for you. I want you to understand this because if there's one person here struggling with that, I want you to just clearly understand what's happening in the Scripture. It says in verse 8, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees He said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And here's what happens. Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. For from now on, you will be catching men. Then Jesus, when he speaks that to Peter, Peter gets up and he follows him for the rest of his life. Incredible story. But it starts with fear. Because Peter understands he's got sin in his life. And he understands that Jesus is holy. And he thinks there's no way I should be in this man's presence. But when he hears grace spoken to him from Jesus. It changes his life. Jesus says to the person who feels like God hates him. Who feels like he can't be in the presence of God because he's sinful. You know what Jesus says? Don't be afraid. Come on. I got something for you to do. I've got an incredible life waiting for you. You don't have to be afraid. Come and follow me. And I want you to hear that this morning. If you are struggling with the Christian faith, Because you think you don't deserve a life with God. Then congratulations. You've got good theology. You don't deserve. But you have to stop and close your eyes and listen. To the gracious voice of God that says. Even in your sin. I love you. And you can come to me. The one lie that probably has sent more people to hell is the lie that you have to get your life straight before you come to Jesus. We spend years trying to clean up our act so that we'll be good enough so that Jesus will accept us. Don't wait another day. Here's Peter in the presence of Jesus bowing At his feet saying, Lord, I don't deserve to be around you. Go, Jesus, as quick as you can. Because I'm sinful and you're holy and I don't deserve to be in your presence. And and I'm, I'm a sinful person. And Jesus says, you don't have to be afraid. And I want you to hear that this morning.
But if you've never given your life to Christ and you've never come into the kingdom of God because you feel like you're too bad, you've done too many bad things, you don't think that you're good enough for God, listen to me. Jesus hung on a cross so that you would run to him and not run away. I want you to understand that. We can leave here today not responding to God in fear. And the next one is rejection. And some of us probably have been to this place before as well. As we think about the response of rejection, we're going to use the scripture in the New Testament where there was a man who lived in the tombs and he was possessed by a legion of demons. And the neighbors had pushed him out of the neighborhood and made him live in the tombs. And it actually tried to chain him to the tombs. But through his possession, he was so strong that he broke the chains. Jesus shows up on a boat. He heals the man. The man then becomes in his right mind. And he's healed and he's set free from demonic possession. And all of a sudden, the town comes running out into the tombs, into the cemetery. And they look. And they see the man sitting there at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine this story? The neighborhood weirdo, okay? Can we just say it like it was? This guy was the neighborhood weirdo. He was the one that the parents said, don't go down there, that guy's crazy. He was the one that the kids were always daring, I dare you to get close to him. I dare you to go into the tombs at night, that crazy weird guy lives there. This was him. The entire world had written him off. The neighborhood had pushed him out to live in the tombs. And Jesus shows up and sets him free. Now this is the story, if you've interacted with the Bible at all, this is the story where when Jesus sends the demons out of the man, he sends them into a herd of pigs. And this is the story where the pigs run for the edge of the cliff and goes sailing right off into the water. But none of them have taken their swimming lessons. They drown. And the town people come out. And they look at this. And they don't throw a party. They don't thank Jesus. They don't say, hey, I know another guy. Let me go get him. They say, Lord Jesus, and and actually, if you look in the scripture, I think we have it. Uh, In the scripture, it says, they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. The God who who made the heavens and the earth is right there in your zip code. He had just done one of the most amazing miracles And set this man free. And clearly nobody else knew what to do with him. He was right there and they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. And so you know what Jesus did? He left. How tragic of a story it is. When God comes to his own that he created... And begins to do miraculous things because we're afraid.
because we don't want Jesus to disrupt the normal in our life. Because we don't want anyone with that much power to be involved in my life because I don't know what he will do in my life. We beg him to leave. I'm not saying this is a good response, you understand. I'm just saying that this is a response. And I think it's important for us to be able to identify that in our own life. Has there been a time in your life where you tried to reject God because His power made you uncomfortable? His demands made you uncomfortable. His ministry made you uncomfortable. And so you said, I would prefer the normalcy of what I know rather than the unknownness of biblical discipleship. We have fear as a response. We also have rejection as a response. There are two more responses that I would uh, really beg you to consider as opposed to all of these others that we've looked at. One is worship. This is the fourth response, worship. Worshiping the Lord at any place and at any time where we experience and we're made aware of the presence of God. And so this morning as we think about worship, there's a story about the Hebrew people in in the Old Testament that I think is an important one for us to think about. So this is a story of the Old Testament people trying to force God to do something for them. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to make God do something? Well, here's what happens. In in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people are at war with a group of people called the Philistines. The Philistines were a nasty group of warriors that could really fight. And And the Hebrew people are having a really hard time fighting with them. So what happens is they get together as Hebrew leaders and they say, what can we do to make God fight our battle for us? Anytime you start with, what can I do to make God? It's not going to go well for you. This is what they say. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. That was represented the very presence of God. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to put it on the front line of the war. Surely that will force God to do something for us. Well, they got whipped again. They got whipped again. And not only did they get whipped again, but the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. Except for the Philistines didn't like the Ark of the Covenant being among them because while it brought blessings to the Hebrew people, it brought curses to the Philistines. Now, they get together and they decide as Philistines, what are we going to do? Because we don't want the Ark of the Covenant anymore. There's too many problems. There's too much illness. And God is cursing us because we stole this from the Hebrews. And so they have a bright idea. We'll just give it back. So what do they do? They give it back. And the scripture says, and this is a scripture that we're going to look at, that the Hebrew people are at work. They're in the field doing their daily work. They're farming. And all of the sudden in in, uh, the scripture, the Bible says that the cart carrying the Ark of the Covenant came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and it stopped there. 
A great stone was there, and so they, they split up the wood of the cart, and they offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. And it goes on to say, And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, and which were the golden figures, and they set them up on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. Now, you may look at that and go, What? Is, is this church do burnt offerings? No. We don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because the perfect sacrifices come, Jesus Christ. We don't have to do that anymore. But what I want you to see is, get this picture. They're at work. And all of a sudden, the Ark of the Covenant, they, are, they look up and they see the Ark of the Covenant. They discover that they're in the presence of God. This is why I share this with you. This is why we talk about worship being a response to the presence of God. Because it didn't matter where they were. When they experienced the presence of God, they just worshipped. Now, their worship may look a little bit different than yours. You know, we're in here with the air on and air-conditioned or heat, today's heater. And we've got music and we're singing and we're crying out to God. Our worship looks a little bit different. Then the people of Beth Shemesh offering burnt offerings. But nonetheless, when they experienced and were made aware of the presence of God, they just worshipped Him. What would it take for you to become the type of person that, that doesn't feel like you have to wait to come to this building to worship Jesus? Right there at their job. They began to worship. You telling me that I can worship God at my job? Yes. You're telling me at school I can worship God? Yes. You're telling me in my living room I can worship the Lord? Yes. You see, anywhere that we experience the presence of God is the perfect place for us to worship Him. Now the fifth response is transformation. And Zacchaeus gives us a great glimpse into this. So look with me if you would in God's Word. And Jess and I uh, were talking about this this week. Why is it that we don't hear more sermons on Zacchaeus? Because we think that that's a kid's story. We heard it in VBS. We heard it in junior church. And somehow or another we think we've graduated. The Lord's work in the life of Zacchaeus is miraculous and powerful. And it shows what a transformed life looks like. That's found in Luke 19. If you're writing these down to go back, it's in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. And the scripture actually says... Uh, in Luke 15, I'm, I'm just going to turn there and read the opening part to you so that you can uh, see. It's in, in Luke chapter 19. I, I may have said 15. If I said 15, excuse me, it's in 19. But it, when Jesus entered Jericho, he was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was not a popular guy. And when the Bible says that he was a tax collector, that meant that probably most people didn't enjoy being around him. 
because he would have been thought of as somebody who cheated and ripped people off, says there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but because of the crowd, he could not. He was short, the scripture says. So he went ahead and he climbed out into a tree because Jesus was coming by that way. Now, here's what the scripture says. And I, we, if you grew up in church, you probably already know what I'm about to read. But can you just discipline yourself to hear it with new ears for the first time? So those of you who are new to the faith, this is going to blow your mind. This, what, what I'm about to share with you, will revolutionize how you think God works in people's lives. Listen to this. Now it says, uh, in, in the scripture, in verse 5, it says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up into the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down because today I'm going to stay at your house. He didn't criticize him for his character. He didn't scold him. He didn't invite him to come to the temple with him. You know what he said? He said, hey, Zacchaeus, today I'm coming to your house. Isn't it offensive when people invite themselves over to your house? But Jesus does. He says, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your home. What would you do if you were Zacchaeus? You know what I would have done? I would have said, oh, yeah, Jesus, sure, come on. And on the walk, I would have been like, um, Jesus, I just want you to know that if the dishes are dirty, my kids, they're responsible for that, right? You start doing all of this, like there might be some laundry on the floor. Not in our house, sweetheart, because it's always done. I mean, you do great at leading the kids and me and I don't even want to get into that conversation. I feel awkward right now. But, you know, you'd be talking with Jesus about, well, what about this and this? But Zacchaeus let him just come right into his house. Think about the intimate moment that must have been. When it, when it wasn't in the church house anymore. And they moved off the platform and right into your personal space and your bubble. And Jesus is in Zacchaeus' living room. And if you think, if you think that God only wants to engage you here, I want you to understand that's not the biblical Jesus. He wants to come off the platform and sit down in your living room. And you know what happens when that occurs? It will transform and revolutionize your life. In one single moment with Jesus, in one response, his life was transformed. Look at what the scripture says. Look at at what it goes on to say. And Zacchaeus stood up. Now, Jesus is being criticized at this point. Well, that's some sinner. What's he doing over there with sinners? Well, that's why Jesus came. He didn't come out and hang out with the holy people. He came to be with sinners. And so Jesus is at Zacchaeus' house, sitting in his living room at his table, going to have a meal, and everybody's criticizing Jesus. Jesus, he's with sinners. What's going on? And, and Zacchaeus knows. 
He knows that he's a sinner. But because Jesus has mercy on him and doesn't withhold his presence, but he lavishes his presence on him with grace and mercy by even coming into his house. This is what happens. Zacchaeus stands up and he says to the Lord, listen, Jesus. Listen, half of what I own, I will give to the poor. You talk about transformation. What would it take for you to come to that point at this moment? Stand up and say, half of what's in my account, I'm giving away to the poor. I'm not going to ask you to do that. But think about that. This man was already convicted in his heart. He knew that he had robbed people. He knew that he had lived an unclean life. Jesus didn't have to point it out. He knew it. And when he's with Jesus, he stands up and he says, Lord, I'm ready to get right with you. Now, for Zacchaeus, that was financial because he was a thief in the neighborhood. And he ripped people off. And for you, I don't know what it would be. But he says, and if I've defrauded anyone, now that's a big if. It's not like if. It's like the people that I have defrauded. I will restore it fourfold. That... Is a powerful picture of transformation. That's the response I want for us. For me. For you. The response of transformation. Being. In the presence of God. Not running from him because of fear. Not rejecting him. Because. For a hundred different reasons. But Zacchaeus comes to this point where he says. I turn from that old way. And Jesus I want to be right with you. Those are five responses. Now you saw. That we looked at places in the Bible. Where those can be found. I want you to understand. There are dozens of places in the Bible. Where those can be found. But as we close, I want for us to pick our eyes up from the Bible and focus them inward. And I want for us to close with the question, not how did Isaiah respond to God's presence or Peter respond to God's presence or the Hebrews respond to God's presence or Zacchaeus respond to God's presence. I would like for you to ask yourself, How will I respond to God's presence? Would you stand? We're going to pray. We're going to finish this morning with prayer. Before I vocalize a prayer, I want to give you a moment to just stand and bow and ask yourself that really important question. How Do you respond to the presence of God? What would it take for you to move from fear this morning to worship? 
what would it take for you to move from rejection to transformation? keeps you from abiding in the presence of God? If you're new to the things of faith, this may be a very strange moment for you. Your heart may be racing, not knowing what's going on and We just want to give people a space to talk to the Lord, to hear from God, to respond to God. If you don't know exactly how to do that, I would love to help you after the service. going to pray together and close but before we do that I just want to read out the thrive statement over you again so that you can hear it while you're in a posture of prayer I am aware of responding to and celebrating the very presence of God throughout the day. Lord, we are unworthy recipients of your incredible grace and mercy that you would make yourself available to us at any time and at any place through Jesus. Wow, thank you, Lord. We are filled with awe. We're filled with a sense of value. We're filled with confidence, knowing that our faith is not an empty religion, but a connection to the one who made all things including us. Help us, Lord, as we work really hard to take steps to abide in your presence. I pray that you see these steps and you're honored by them. That they bless you as you see them and as we seek to really abide in the presence of God, not just learn it, but do it. We pray that you would be honored in it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.